Well, as you know, in our preaching series through First Peter, we came in chapter 2 to a new section beginning in verse 11. And now Peter is particularly emphasizing Christian behavior in the present world. Those who have been saved by the grace of God and the great salvation that is described in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 have a responsibility to live in the light of the truth that we know, in the light of the grace that we have received. And Peter tells us that the exemplary conduct of Christians impacts unbelievers toward God. And the first area of exemplary conduct that he emphasizes is our submission to human authority. And the first area of human authority that he emphasizes is civil government. And by our humble submission to the ordinances of men, the laws, the regulations of civil government, as long as they do not contradict the word of God, we demonstrate the grace of God in our lives. And we become a testimony to the watching world. Verses 13 through 17 are the section that deals with our submission to civil government. And we dealt with verses 13 through 15 last Sunday. And that brings us, therefore, to verses 16 and 17 as our text for today. The two verses that conclude this section. Verse 16 talks to us about Christian liberty. And verse 17 is something of a summary of the entire section, that is, verses 13 through 17. And so we read in verse 16, As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And in verse 16, we have raised this subject of Christian freedom or Christian liberty. Either word can be used. And biblically, they are synonymous. The verse begins by saying, as free, and then continues by saying, not using liberty. So Christian freedom, Christian liberty, is under the microscope of our examination today as we ask God to show us what it means to enjoy Christian liberty. We need to have a biblical understanding of what this is. And so as we consider true Christian freedom, we're going to look first of all at what it is, and secondly, how it relates to others, and then thirdly, or secondly rather, how it behaves, and thirdly, how it relates to others. First of all, what it is. Christian liberty. A term that we've heard many times, and yet I'm not sure that we always have a clear understanding of what is involved. We know that there are a number of of texts in the Bible that speak of this in one way or another. Which of us has not pondered on the words of Christ in John 8.32 when he said, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And in verse 36, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Or words like these by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We know these verses are in the Bible, and we have some concept of what they entail, and yet we really need to have a better understanding of what this involves. And so, what is Christian freedom? 
After having just told us that the first expression of our godly living before the world is humble submission to civil authority, he then tells us that we are free. Does humble submission to civil authority make us bond slaves? Does that restrict us? Are we bound by that requirement? Evidently not. We are free if we are sons of God. And so what is this freedom of which the Bible speaks? And I think all of us understand that it is freedom from sin. Sin it is that has brought us under bondage. Whether we're talking about personally and experientially in our own lives, when we have pursued sin, we know by experience how it has bound us more and more and fettered us. That which we thought would bring us freedom turned out instead to bind us to our own passions and sins and habits and enslavements. We know that's true, but we can also trace this truth all the way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, and remember there how God created Adam in perfection, without sin, And with a perfect capacity to know and enjoy God, to fellowship with Him, to worship Him. And then Adam sinned, and sin plunged mankind into bondage. And Adam's freedom to know, to serve, to worship God was now destroyed. And so the freedom that Christ brings is freedom from sin. It is freedom from sin's condemnation. We're grateful for that. Paul said in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The operation of Christ in my heart has freed me from the penalty of sin, from sin's condemnation, the law of sin and death, the law which says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And Christ has freed me from this. But Christ has not only freed me from sin's condemnation, but he's also freed me from sin's futility, from that unending desire to work to earn merit, to keep God's law, to do good in order to please God and to earn my salvation. It is something that we all endeavor to do in one way or another, though some give up more quickly than others. And yet the reason why many give up is because they recognize the futility of it. We cannot earn favor with God by trying to keep His law, by trying to be good, by trying to keep the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule or to love our neighbor or any of these things. Not any of those things by merit with God. And yet, when we are endeavoring to do that, we are bound up in futility. The harder we try, the farther away is the goal. The more that we think we are succeeding, the more elusive is the, the thing that we're grasping at. And it becomes an unending cycle of futility. And that, I think, is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 5.1 when he said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. 
Be free. And don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. And that's in the context of the false teachers who had come to the Galatians and told them, now, faith in Christ is not enough. You've got to add circumcision and dietary regulations and feast days and all of these other things if you are truly going to be a child of God. And Paul said, resist that. Don't return again to the futility of works righteousness. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. And don't be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. So this is what Christian freedom is. But more than anything else, Christian liberty is freedom from sin's dominion, sin's bondage in our lives. Grace restores fallen Adam. As we've seen, Adam before the fall was free to relate to his creator without hindrance, to worship and serve him, to enjoy him forever. He was free to fulfill the purpose for which he was created. No hindrance stood in the way between Adam and the fulfillment in his life of the very thing that God created him for. And that, dear friends, is freedom to be able to do what you were made to do. To be able to accomplish the very purpose for which you were created. To fulfill those things for which you were designed by your creator. That indeed is freedom. And sin enters in. And sin destroys that ability. It brings us under bondage. It brings us under its power. It captivates us to its dominion. It lords over us. It it weighs us down. It drags us down. It comes between us and God in our ability to know Him, to enjoy Him, to serve Him freely without hindrance. That's what sin does. It brings us into bondage. But grace restores what was lost in Adam. Grace reestablishes Sinful man with his creator. Grace removes the sin that came between sinful man and the holy God. Grace justifies us in the blood of Jesus Christ and makes our standing before God a righteous standing. And grace joins us to Christ and enables us to know God, the one true God, and to fellowship with Him and to obey His commandments and to serve Him and to please Him and to delight in doing so. That's what grace does. It frees us from sin's dominion, which held us fast and enabled us, it rendered us unable, rather, to to serve God in this way for which we were created. And when Christ comes, he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. And then Christ, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, we now have an ability toward God that we did not have before we were regenerated. We have an ability, once again, to do what we were created to do, and we have an ability to do what we now desire to do. That was our problem before Christ came, created on the one hand in the image of God to serve God, but sin had not only destroyed our ability, but even our desire to do that. And that left us as warped creatures, out of sync with our Maker, unable to fulfill the purpose for which we were made, unable to do that which we were designed to do. 
And so grace in Christ restores what sin has destroyed. And now we have not only the ability, but the desire to know God and to love Him and to serve Him as we ought. And that really is what biblical freedom is. It's freedom to do what we were created to do. It's freedom to be what God made us to be. It's freedom to relate to God the way that we were supposed to relate to God in the beginning. And sin made that impossible. And grace now restores that to us again. That's what biblical freedom is. It's destroying the dominion of sin along with its guilt and its Futility. But sometimes we have difficulty grasping that. When we think of liberty, when we think of freedom, we too often think as the old Adam would think. We think in terms of doing what we would like to do in the flesh. Without any restrictions, without any accountability. That somehow is too often our concept of freedom. But that's not a godly concept of freedom. Don't you understand? That is a sinner's concept of freedom, and it's a lie. Because as we know, when we pursue what we consider to be that kind of freedom, all we end up is is bound more tightly than ever in the shackles of sin. Sin is like a rope, and it winds around and around and around and around, and we become bound to the habits, the addictions, the destructions of sin. So we shouldn't be thinking that way. The reason sometimes we have difficulty understanding what true freedom is is because even in our Christianity, we are far too man-centered and not enough God-centered. We are too quick to view freedom from the standpoint of man and, yes, from fallen man and are slow to view freedom from the standpoint of the God who made us and what he made us for, and to view this freedom in a Godward perspective. And yet, if that's what God made us for, if we don't view it in a Godward perspective, we shall never enjoy it, we shall never come to to enter into it, and we shall never achieve true freedom. We shall always be grasping after that elusive sinful freedom which turns out to be bondage. Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. And he will wrap us up in deception and cause us to be reaching after what we think is freedom when all we're doing is plucking another chain off the tree of forbidden fruit to bind our souls that much more. From time to time over the years, I have watched a godly Christian wife with an unconverted husband as she struggles in her desire to please and serve the Lord and finds that very difficult many times. And I have seen in some occasions when God removed that unconverted mate by death or some other means out of her life, how that there is a new freedom, a new blossoming when when a a wife who had difficulty many times even worshiping with the saints of God on Sunday morning because her husband is unsympathetic and she would struggle to be there. Now she's free and she delights to be there not only Sunday morning but Sunday night and Wednesday night. And There's a new freedom, a new ability to do what she's wanted to do all along, but she was hindered in doing that. 
Well, that's the idea. Sin in the life of a believer pulls us back from doing what our new man, our new heart, desires to do. And it's a wonderful thing when we enter in to the enjoyment, the, the various aspects of true Christian liberty. So that's what it is. Freedom from sin's dominion. Freedom to do what our sanctified heart now desires to do. But number two, how does Christian freedom behave? Well, that's the second part of verse 16. The first part brings the subject to the fore as free. The last part tells us how Christian freedom behaves. Yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. This is how Christian freedom behaves. First negatively and then positively. How does it behave? Well, it does not use liberty as a cloak for vice, for sin. But positively, it delights in becoming a bondservant of God. This is what Christian freedom does. This is how it behaves. Didn't the Apostle Paul tell us essentially the same thing in Galatians 5.13? When he said, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There it is. Exactly what Peter is telling us. Exactly what Peter is telling us. So how does Christian liberty behave? Well, negatively, it does not use liberty as a cloak for vice. We are tempted to abuse our Christian liberty, even as we are, uh, we are tempted toward all kinds of other sins, as long as we are in this world. Because even though we have been freed by Christ from the penalty of sin and the frustration of sin, we have not yet been completely freed from the presence of sin, have we? And will not be until we get to heaven. And so we still have to wrestle with sinful temptations. Yes, even the temptation to abuse the wonderful freedom, the wonderful liberty which we have in Christ. But it's clear from the words of Peter as well as the words of Paul, in fact, all throughout the Bible, that Christian liberty can never be understood in terms of antinomianism. That's a $10,000 theological word that means without law against the law or apart from the law of God, anti-nomianism. And some have interpreted Christian liberty this way, as if when a person is in Christ, the law has nothing to do with him anymore, and he can behave any way he wants to in his, in his sanctified self or in his fallen Adamic self. He can act any way he wants to. He can, he can break any law of God, and the law has nothing to do with him at all anymore. But that's wrong. That's wrong. The law does not condemn us to perdition, which is what we deserve. The law, properly understood, does not frustrate us in trying to to, uh, follow it in order to gain merit with God. The law and its corresponding twin, sin, does not 
bind us and have dominion over us as it did before we were saved, but it still informs us. It still instructs us. It still shows us the character and nature of God and what is pleasing to God and displeasing to God. Christian liberty is not freedom to live any old way we like, even following the pursuits of fallen Adam. It's not that at all. Not using liberty is a cloak for vice. No antinomianism, which has been a problem that has plagued the church of the Lord Jesus Christ all down through history and keeps cropping up and breaking out in new forms in every generation. I still remember probably 30 or 40 years ago now, a pastor in another state who was well-known, had a large following across the nation who emphasized the grace of God but misunderstood the grace of God and made the statement one time that his was the only church he knew of that it made no difference whether a woman attended wearing a bikini or a barrel. They were such so full of grace. They didn't have any hang-ups. They, uh, they were proud of their tolerance. Well, that's an, a total misunderstanding of grace. That's a total misunderstanding of Christian liberty. Not... Using liberty as a cloak for vice. A cloak or a veil for vice, that is for evil. Not using liberty as a cover-up for sin. A pretext for sin, a justification for sin. Sometimes God's people overreact to the strains of Pharisaism that they see among some Christians. And some Christians do want to add laws to the law of God, add regulations that God never gave. Some Christians want to bind up everybody with their own concepts and interpretations of how they ought to please God. And we'll give you list after list after list. And that, of course, is entirely wrong. That's acting like the Pharisees. We take what God has given us in His Word, the Bible, no more, no less. No more, no less. We don't add to it. We don't subtract from it. But sometimes God's children, overreacting to Pharisaism, will say, I will just throw off all restraint, and I'm, I'm the judge of what is right and wrong, and I will decide, and I will live to please myself without any reference to anyone else. Oh, no, 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 friends. You're not to be using your liberty as a cloak or a pretext or a justification for that which is evil. What Peter is telling us is that Christian liberty does not excuse sin. And Christian liberty does not minimize sin. Rather, it recognizes sin for what it is. And when sin is found in the believer's life, that believer confesses it. He acknowledges it. He says quickly, that is wrong. I acknowledge it is wrong. I am guilty of doing wrong. And I confess that as sin before God. I acknowledge that I have transgressed the revealed will of my Heavenly Father. Christian liberty acknowledges God's right to define sin. There is no such thing as evil. Evil makes no sense at all unless there is a standard by which we measure what is good and what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. And so Christian liberty understands that God has the right to define sin. And it acknowledges that God has the right to forbid sin, that God is the authority. God is God. God is king. God has dominion. God has the right to rule. And Christian liberty acknowledges all of that. 
and says, I gladly yield to God the right to rule my life according to his precepts, according to his definition of what is right and wrong. It's my responsibility to find out what that is and to order my life accordingly. This is all within the framework of Christian liberty. Christian liberty does not abuse freedom in order to pursue sin. Christian liberty does not say, I will do what I want. I will go where I want. I will wear what I want. It's all up to me. Christian liberty doesn't act that way. It is not all in reference to self. It is all in reference to God and to serving others, being able to do that freely and gladly. So how does Christian liberty behave? It does not use liberty as a cloak for vice, but rather it sees itself as a bondservant of God. Christian liberty causes the Christian to gladly, voluntarily take his place as a servant of God, a bondservant of God, literally a bondslave, a slave of God. Because Christian liberty is the freedom to be able to serve God with joy and delight, something we could not do before Christ entered our lives. It is the freedom now to obey his commands, including submission to civil authority in this context. It is the freedom to offer to God willing service, not grudging service. Before we were saved, we knew something about the law of God, and it weighed upon our conscience, but, and we, we tried somehow to, to do it, but not with delight. We resented it. We, we, were, we were unhappy with it. We yielded to God whatever service we did with, with some element of distaste, some grudging service, as if we had to please a cruel ogre who has more power than we do, and we must therefore try to appease him. But as a servant of God, freed by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have an entirely different mindset. And now we have been freed, and we are free to offer our lives willingly, gladly, voluntarily to the Lord who saved us and to obey him with delight. As bondservants of God, we're free from sins and encumbrances. Now to fulfill our purpose, that creation purpose lost in the fall, is now being restored in redemption's purpose, restored in the new birth, new abilities that Adam forfeited in the garden. And so Christian freedom does not behave like the unbeliever, does not, cannot. Christian liberty serves God's laws and Christ's kingdom with delight. God's Spirit creates that desire within us. And therefore, we need to understand that the misuse of Christian liberty is sin. It is. The misuse of Christian liberty is sin. And furthermore, it is a return to the old bondage. In defining liberty in terms of old Adam rather than new Adam, and grasping after selfish freedom rather than delighting in this newfound freedom and ability to serve God, we move back toward the old bondage. And what do we do? As Christians, we lose a measure of our freedom. It's impossible for us to be as bound in sin as we were before Christ entered our lives. 
But yes, by pursuing sin, by dabbling in sin, by being active in sin, by sinning, we have some of those same old ropes of sin begin to wrap themselves around our soul once more. And we lose our true freedom. And we have lives that are now filled with frustration because the new man within us has a a desire toward God. But we have yielded to the old Adam and pursued sin under the pretext of Christian liberty. And now we are in tension between the two and the old frustrations are rising within our soul and we have difficulty enjoying anything. We can't really enjoy sin fully. We've been ruined for that. The new birth has ruined us for that. But we can't really delight in God either. That which we have been freed for, that which the new birth created us for, this wonderful new joy and delight, we can't really enter into that because we are misunderstanding and misusing our Christian liberty. The truth of the matter is, the more fervently we serve Christ, the more we experience true freedom. It's a paradox, of course, but surely we who have been saved have been given by the Spirit of God an ability to understand this paradox. This is a spiritual truth. It might make no sense to the unconverted person, but it does make sense to us. We know that this is true. We understand what Peter's talking about. We understand what the Bible is saying, and we realize truly that the more fervently, the more unreservedly, the more committedly we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we experience true freedom. But thirdly, how does this freedom relate to others? And that's verse 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Four imperatives, four commands. Yes, Christians have commands. And here's a series of them. Four imperatives to summarize what Peter has been saying. It summarizes this paragraph. And in many ways, it summarizes all of the Christian's duty in life. These are simply highlights, and they can be filled in, but this is a good list to begin with. Work on these four things. Do these four things, and you'll go a long way toward living your life in a way that both pleases the God, pleases God and makes a powerful impact upon the unsaved people around you. And what are these four things that relate to others? Number one, honor honor all people. You can see in your Bible that the word people is in italics. It's not really in the Greek. It just says honor all. We're left to fill in the blank, but in the context it would seem to be all people, all human beings. It is the Christian's duty to honor every person. For every person has been made in the image of God. And we are therefore to honor every man, every woman. That is, respect them. Value them as someone made in God's image. Esteem them 
as someone who has value. If they have value because God created them and gave them life and sustains that life upon the earth. If they have value to God, then surely they ought to have value to the people of God. And so we are to honor them. That is, be, at the very least, be courteous and respectful to all people regardless. Nothing wounds the soul of a man or a woman like the scorn or contempt of another. And Christians, therefore, should banish from their lives all expressions of scorn or contempt toward others. We are rather to honor all others. Christians should work very hard at not telegraphing their disapproval toward others. And we will have to work at that because we are struggling with, on the one hand, the requirements of God's righteousness, but on the other hand, the requirement to honor all people. And so we are to honor all people, whether in the political world, the commercial world, or the world of social relationships. We are to honor, respect all people, the poor as much as the rich, the black as much as the white, the low class as much as those of high class, the uneducated every bit as much as the educated, Democrats as well as Republicans, foreigners as well as Americans, Wicked people as much as righteous people. This may be the most difficult one of all for God's people. We are repulsed by sin, aren't we? We are. We ought to be. We have the righteousness of Christ. And we have a new perspective on things. Very difficult sometimes to be respectful and courteous towards someone who's living a life of blatant immorality and sinfulness. Very difficult to be courteous and respectful toward, for example, a homosexual. But we've got to learn to do that, to be courteous and respectful, not to telegraph our disapproval by the way we look, by the way we speak to them. We are to honor all people, whether illegal or legal. All people command our respect. If we would do this, if, if, if just God's people would do this, that would end, or pretty much end, racial conflicts, certainly would end them in the church. And this would certainly enhance our witness before the world. This is what God says enhances our witness before the world. Not that we demonstrate our righteous indignation in such a way that everybody knows how we feel about them. They feel our contempt. They feel our scorn. No, that's Phariseeism. Our witness to the world gains effective power as we demonstrate courteous respect toward all people as made in the image of God. And so it's important that in our stand for truth and righteousness, and we must stand for truth and righteousness, that we must not become disrespectful toward others. No demeaning language to them or about them behind their back. No evidence of contempt. No failure to extend common courtesy and respect. No silent treatment when they are around just so they'll know how we feel about them. 
No avoiding them when we should be reaching out to them with a handshake and courtesy. This is how Christian freedom relates to others. We have the freedom to do this in Christ. We have the ability to do this in Christ. Secondly, we have to love the brotherhood. That's an even higher obligation than honoring all men. We are to not only respect the brotherhood, but also to love the brotherhood. And that's a higher duty. This is agape love, a strong love, an active love. We do have a higher obligation to the people of God than we have to those who are in the world. And the Bible tells us in many places that the Christian's first obligation is to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and only secondly to the world. We are to be busy washing the disciples' feet. We are to love the brotherhood. All those who are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just those who attract us, not just those who delight us, not just those that we rather enjoy their company and being with, we must love them all, every brother in Christ. And we must start with our own church, those who are members of our church, who by our own reception into the church, we have acknowledged that we, we respect, we We believe their testimony of faith in Christ. We believe that they are our brothers in Christ. Their reception into the membership of the church is as much earthly evidence of that as we can possibly ever have. And therefore, we should start by loving every one of them with an agape love. You see, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs more volitional, intentional, active, serious love toward the brethren. Much, much more. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. But thirdly, fear God. That's even higher yet, as it ought to be, the highest of all. God gets all of what precedes. We honor God, yes. We love God, yes. We are to love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. But beyond that, we are to fear Him. And God is the only one that we fear. That is to reverence Him. That is to hold Him in the greatest awe. We do not fear man if we fear God. We are not told to fear the King. Though we are to respect Him and respect the the power He has to enforce the law. But we, we do not fear man if we properly fear God. If we properly fear God, then He's all that we fear, all that we need to fear. The fear of respect. We fear His wisdom. It is so vast. We fear His power. We know what He can do. We fear His holiness, this all-consuming holiness, and we respect Him and love Him for His grace. It is the fear of worship. We worship Him reverentially. We come into His presence, singing His praises and bowing before His throne and receiving His mercy and grace and delighting in the relationship that we have with Him. But it is not a relationship of one buddy to another buddy. It is a relationship of a hell-deserving, redeemed sinner to the almighty, awesome God who has reached down in grace and saved our hell-deserving soul. It's the fear of submissive obedience. If we truly fear God, we will endeavor to obey Him in all that He tells us. We'll recognize that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We have to start with that. 
If we don't start with fearing God, we shall never attain the wisdom that is truly wisdom. We shall always be be captivated by foolish thinking, by, by that which passes for wisdom, which is only folly. We shall constantly be deceived by, by the foolish so-called wisdom of the world and the sayings of unconverted men, and we'll never really come to that understanding of true wisdom which comes only from God and begins by fearing Him. That's when we can start receiving true wisdom from Him. And then number four, we honor the king. Honor the king. That brings us back to the beginning. It's kind of a cycle. We went all the way around the circle here, and we're back to what Peter started out talking about. We honor the king. John Calvin had a very interesting comment on this, I thought. He said, and I quote, Because this form of government was more than any other disliked. Peter tells us to honor the king because this form of government is more than any other disliked. That's the form of government we would, we would like the least. And, and that's the kind of, of governing official that we would be inclined to respect the least because we don't like dictators. Do we? I don't. I know you don't. How do I know you don't? Because I don't. We're a lot alike. But that's what the Word of God tells us, to honor the king. What is due to the king is really no higher than the respect that's due unto all men. Isn't it interesting? Honor all men. Level A. Love the brotherhood. That's higher. Level B. Fear God. That's higher yet. Level C. And honor the king. Back to level A again. The king is not divine. The king is not due our love, at least the love that's due to the brothers, to the brethren. The king is certainly not due fear, such as the fear that goes only to God. But the king is due our honor, our respect. We are to be respectful to his, of his person and respectful of his position and respectful of his authority. We are, as we know, to pray for him. Paul said to Timothy, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Honor the king. These Christians in Peter's day struggled with this, of course, just like we do today. But they understood, I think, what Peter was saying. Not one pinch of incense to worship Caesar as Lord. But do reverence, honor, submission, respect to his authority and to his laws that do not violate the laws of God. That, by the way, is just the opposite of the attitude of unbelievers. Unbelievers are happy to give ceremonial respect to the authority and then get away with breaking as many laws as they can behind his back. Christians will not give to the government the worship, the fear, the level of reverence and worship that belongs only to God. We will not give anything to Caesar that belongs only to Jesus Christ, but we will voluntarily obey the laws of the king when there is no highwayman around watching. 
Evidently, submission to authority does not cancel Christian liberty, does it? And so what have we learned about Christian liberty today? Christian liberty is not freedom to live selfishly. Christian liberty is the freedom to gladly and voluntarily give back to God the freedom he gave to you. That's really what it is, isn't it? Grace has freed us. Christ has freed us. The blood of Jesus Christ has freed us. The Holy Spirit of God has regenerated us and freed us, freed us from being shackled to sin. We are now free. And what do we do with that freedom? We cast our crowns at His feet. We cast our freedom at His feet. We voluntarily give Him our lives, our service. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present Your body is a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We have the freedom to do that. And our highest expression of gratitude toward God is to yield to Him voluntarily the life that He has given us, which is now a life that is freed from sinful bondage. And therefore, Christian liberty is given to us to serve God and to serve others and to be able to do so with delight. Thanking God that we can. Thanking God that we have the ability to do this. It's only Christ who's given us that. And if you're here today and you just can't find within you a desire to serve God in that way, then it may be that you are claiming what you do not possess. You may be claiming a salvation which is not genuine. You may be claiming a Christian liberty which is not real. And it may be that what you need to do is to acknowledge your lost condition, to recognize that you've never been freed from the bondage of sin because you can't free yourself from selfish desires. You can't free yourself to desire to serve and please God. You can't do that for yourself, can you? But I know one who can if you will acknowledge your need and go to Christ, cast yourself upon his mercy. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, help us to truly understand what it means to be free, to recalibrate our thinking so that it matches your word, your revelation, which we recognize is always true, And when it conflicts with our thinking, our thinking must always be rejected. And so, Lord, we repent. We repent of our selfishness. We repent of our misuse of Christian freedom. We repent, O Lord, of our failure to take others into account as we have pursued the desires of our own heart. We repent most of all of failing to take you, O God, and your word into account as we have lived our lives day by day. Lord, help us to gladly serve you, love you, worship you by giving to you all of the energies, all of the time, all of the talents, all of the the opportunities and abilities that you have given to us in Christ as we ask it in his name. Amen.